The Right Stuff with Kevin and Casey. Episode 1, Why Catholic? Hey there, welcome to The Right Stuff Podcast. I'm Kevin. And I'm Casey. And we are here on our inaugural episode, episode 1 of The Right Stuff. And we decided to do this on the, the Solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, on August 15th, because what a great day to take off. Absolutely. I freaking love Mary. All right. So um, today's saint is St. Alypius, and we'll get to him in a minute, but uh, Casey and I decided to keep this kind of relaxed, and we're going to do, a, do a, a cocktail on our podcast that will feature... Because we are Catholic. Right. Catholics we, like to drink. And we can do that. <laughs> So basically, the infallible dogma that Mary, the mother of God, was assumed or taken up into heaven, body, and soul wasn't solemnly defined until 1950 by Pope Pius XII, but the belief itself stretches back to the earliest centuries of Christianity. It's been celebrated liturgically uh, since the 6th century, and among Catholic and Orthodox Christians, the only real debate has been whether the Blessed Virgin Mary died and then was assumed into heaven, or whether she was taken up to heaven alive as Elijah was. Pope Uh, Pius XII circumvented this controversy by simply stating that the Blessed Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. So what do you think? Do you think she died or do you think she was just living and God just assumed her into heaven? You know, it's funny because I think because she was the vessel in which Jesus Christ appeared here as a human being, God himself, that uh, she was probably assumed into heaven from her sleep. I don't think she died. I don't think God would allow her to die and decay. That's what I think. But as Catholics, we're allowed to think either thing, and it's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Um, our Orthodox brothers and sisters believe in something that they call dormition. So they definitely believe she went to sleep because dormition comes from, a, a believe it or not, a Latin word, uh, which means to sleep, which is great. So traditionally, the Assumption is one of the greatest feasts of the year, accompanied by grand possessions and festivities. One custom is particularly interesting, the blessing of herbs and fruits, for which there is a detailed ceremony in the traditional Roman ritual. In honor of Our Lady and this ancient tradition, it's time to break out any herbal or fruit liqueur from the cabinet, chartreuse, benedictine, isara, you name it. Plan B would be just any cocktail with herbs or fruit in it. You could even use the uh, produce blessed by a priest for this feast. So you could have a peach bellini or um, even something with basil. Well, wait a minute. How about something with a strawberry? Oh, strawberry. Yeah, strawberry. Why not? I never thought about that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, In medieval art, the strawberry is the symbol of, among other things, Mary's fruitful virginity because the plant both flowers and fruits at the same time, which is pretty cool. Perhaps the most versatile recipe of all is the strawberry fizz, which we'll be making. And you can see that on our YouTube channel. Uh, All the links will be at the end of the podcast. Since you can choose whatever liquor you want, whether it be gin or vodka, which would probably be, yeah, gin, gin, absolutely. But uh, you can, you can use whatever you want. Um, but believe it or not, I think bourbon is surprisingly good as well in that, um, bourbon, believe it or not. Really? Okay. Of course you could also use a strawberry flavored vodka, which would only enhance this a little bit or, which is pretty funny, make it a virgin drink. In this case, a blessed virgin drink. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for for all your dry uh, friends or the kids in the room. I mean, 
I like that. that was, okay, you should replace your dad joke, though, with that one. That was, oh, okay. That one's a little bit better. Okay. Speaking of uh, dad jokes, in <laughs> case, what do, you, what do you call a sleepwalking oh, nun? I don't know. Come on, a sleepwalking nun. A nun, nun, sleep nun. She's a she's a Roman Catholic. Oh, okay. Come on, come on. No, no, no. Okay, don't tell your friends that. Okay, so probably better that we start like constructing our cocktail here so that we can have that while we're while we're podcasting. Perfect, because I kind of need a cocktail right now. Sounds good. All right, y'all. We're gonna make a strawberry fizz. So. First of all, get a liquor of your choice. I'm a gin girl. What do, what do you want? Well, let's do gin. Okay. Absolutely. Gin it is. And then we're going to take some cream, lemon juice, simple syrup, soda water, and of course, strawberries. Strawberries for the strawberry fizz, yes. For the sake of time, we've poured everything in our little cocktail shaker except for the ice. So we need to put some ice in. While he's doing that, I am muddling the strawberries. Then we have to pour in our gin. Brokers is my personal favorite. Ooh. You know, our Church of Christ friends love to tease us and tell us that we're, we Catholics are alcoholics, but we like to tell them, no, we're alcohol enthusiasts. Absolutely. And you know what's really funny? Um, God has the funniest sense of humor because, you know, one of my best friends, she's a bartender. And when you shake a drink in a, in a shaker, um, you want to wait for the condensation on the outside to appear. And that means it's shaken enough. The ice will dilute it just enough. Is that like the Holy Spirit appearing? Totally. I'm telling (laughs) you, it kind of is because the funny thing is that condensation appears at approximately 40 shakes. And we all know like, you know, 40 days and 40 nights, the whole nine yards. So 40 is a big number. If you counted them, that was 40 shakes exactly. Let's pour us a couple of strawberry fizz. Oh my gosh, uh, I can't wait. I know, I can't wait to see what this tastes like. Here we go. Let's try this. Casey makes the best ice cubes, I just gotta say. (laughs) I do. I make them really pretty though. Absolutely. I make sure that there's pretty flowers and stuff in there. Absolutely. Here we go. Cheers. Episode one. Episode one. Here we go. All right. Okay. Oh, that's the that's, strawberry. All right. That's a good way to celebrate a solemnity, isn't it? <laughs> All right. Excellent. Excellent. It's a great way of knowing that Mary loves yeah. us. Yeah. And I can understand why this could be a blessed virgin cocktail because I think it would taste just as good without the alcohol. It would. Right? Shout out to uh, all of our friends who don't drink and or kids, right? There we go. So, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of our Church of Christ friends and even our um, Christian brothers and sisters that might not be Catholic, um, they they a lot of times wonder why we drink so much or why we have alcohol and everything. But, you know, we just think that why, why are we making a cocktail right now? Why, what, what, what are we doing? Well, this is, this is interesting to me because if you watch EWTN and if you don't, you should, it's the Catholic channel that's on cable. Now, where are they based out of? Birmingham? Um, it's Alabama. Yeah, it's, Alabama. Yeah, it's close okay. to Birmingham. Uh, Father Mitch Pacwa, um, he always says this, drinking with the saints becomes an occasion, if not an excuse, to slow one's pace, savor a drink, 
and slip not into inebriation, but a relaxed look at the saints. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's. I think it's really good. It's beautiful. It is. And um, there's a there's a gentleman uh, by the name of Michael Foley who wrote a book called Drinking with the Saints, which is probably mm-hmm. on this podcast where we're going to get most of our alcohol recipes because every saint of the day on the Catholic calendar, there's a saint for every single day of the year, and something is attributed to them in the form of a cocktail. And, you know, I feel like they are our friends, right? Absolutely. If we, are praying to them, which we'll get into in later episodes, that praying to saints doesn't mean that we're worshiping saints, but being in communication with them, they're like friends. Absolutely. So why not sit down, have a cocktail, and learn a little bit about them? Let's do it. Cheers. Cheers. Today's saint, Saint Alypius, uh, he was a bishop and a companion of Saint Augustine, who was one of the doctors of the church. He was born in Tagaste, North Africa, and he was raised as a friend of Saint Augustine. He went to Rome to study law and became a magistrate there. And when Augustine arrived in Rome, Olypius resigned his post and accompanied him to Milan. And he was baptized with St. Augustine in 387 to 394, somewhere in there by St. Ambrose. And the two were ordained in Hippo, North Africa. So Olypius became the Bishop of Tagas, serving in the capacity for about 30 years. Um, Olypius's name was placed in the Roman martyr. Mm. Martyrology? <laughs> martyrology. Yeah, martyrology. By Pope Gregory the Thirteenth in 1584. The evidence of Olypius's sanctity was clearly stated by Augustine's account of his life. See, that's pretty cool. Like, they can actually kind of vouch for one another, which I think is really That's really amazing. Nifty. Yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. Absolutely. So, um... Y'all, you can, you can check our YouTube link to how to mix the strawberry fizz, and you can make one, and you can pause this, and you come back and join with us for some cool information about why Catholic, which is literally our concept for today. Why yeah. Catholic? What do you think? So go get yourself a drink, relax, and uh, come join us while we talk about why we're Catholic. Absolutely. And what Catholicism means to us. Sounds good. Placed in the Roman martyrology. Wait, martyrology? It's martyrology. <laughs> Is that not how you say No, Marty, what's up, Marty McFly? <laughs> Episode one, why Catholic? Okay, so Casey, why Catholic? Why Catholic? You know, it's interesting. So I'm a cradle Catholic, meaning I was baptized Catholic. I was raised Catholic. But you know, my parents, my mom was a convert. She was a convert. Wait, wait, what? A convert? You mean a convert? I'm a convert. A convert, okay. Oh my God. Whoa, strawberry fist. That's strawberry. Okay. Somebody cut me off. Yeah, okay. Well. All right, anyway. No, but my mom had converted to Catholicism when we were younger, so my parents were always really great about constantly ask questions. Oh, that's way cool. Ask questions on anything. So, you know, I did, and I would have um, friends question my Catholicism, especially whenever I moved to Nashville and being in the South, it's not as big as where I grew up in Missouri and a little South of St. Louis, where it was very heavily populated with Catholicism and Catholics. So, you know, I really had to learn how to defend my faith. And so from there, I really started digging in and it's been great. Absolutely. I grew up in Northeast Ohio and 75% of everybody was Catholic. So I didn't really have to ever think about it or talk about it until I moved to Tennessee, where maybe, maybe 3% of the population at the point in time when I moved here was Catholic. And so that was really difficult for me because people just didn't get it. They just didn't get it it. at all. They don't get it. um, Why are we Catholic? I mean, why are we Catholic? Let's let's think about that for a minute. Why are we Catholic? Yeah, it's a really great question, actually. And, you know, um, 
it's interesting because so Kevin and I are part of RCIA at the cathedral in uh, up here in Nashville and so Kevin is the director and I just came because I wanted to learn more to be quite honest um, I wanted to learn more about my faith and the more I started digging into it the more I started realizing yeah this is absolutely the number one truth this absolutely is the truth I 100% agree um, one of the things that is really interesting to me, um, when we think about that faith, when we think about our Catholicism, Jesus came to found a church. He literally came to found a church. He, he did. didn't. He didn't come to give us the Bible. He didn't come to give us scripture. He didn't do a lot of things. God sent his only begotten son, literally, so that he give, could give us a church. And why did he give us a church? It allowed us to keep his memory alive through perpetuity. We would What's be perpetuity? able perpetuity forever. Like we, we would be able to deal with, deal with what we do in our faith forever. So all of those that came before us and all of those that will ever come after us case, literally perpetuity. Like it's, it's, it's forever. The you church know, is forever. Yeah. And, and I've had a lot of my friends that will say, you know, I don't need a church. And why do you have to go to church? I can go um, kayaking and I can go canoeing and I can get God through nature. And absolutely you can. But why do we need a church? Why? That's a big question. Yeah. I, I honestly think that if you if you go kayaking, for gosh sakes, you're floating on a river and you see all the trees, you see all the plant life, you see everything that God created in front of your eyes. Yeah. And yes, that is God. Everything about that is God. But why do we need a church? Well, one of the things that... I honestly and and purposefully think is the fact that the church teaches us something that looks like absolute truth. Okay. Absolute truth. And what is absolute truth? Um, it is the fact that there is only one truth. And I'm not trying to dog anybody at all, but if we if we watch things like Oprah Winfrey's specials on her cable network and that sort of thing. You get a dolphin. You get a dolphin. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. And I don't, I'm not going to get a car either. But but the whole point is, oftentimes I hear her say, say things like, um, tell me your truth. I do hear a lot of my friends say that. This is my truth. But there that can't, there, there's only one truth. There is only one truth. This is what God wants us to know. I can't have a truth and God can't have a truth. They're completely in competition. Does that make sense to that you? That makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely. Makes sense. So where do we really see that? First Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I'm writing to you about these matters, although I hope to visit you soon. But if I should be delayed, you should know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So Timothy's telling us right there in scripture, in black and white, all of us who believe that, whether we're Catholic or not, that the church is the pillar of truth. The church herself is the one who is the pillar of truth. Yeah, and I, I think that's great because, you know, as, as Catholics, sometimes we get pinged for not knowing our Bible. Right? Right. Absolutely. And no, we might not know scripture and verse, but yeah, we do know the stories. We absolutely know the stories, but also we know the meaning behind the stories. So we don't necessarily look at thing in, things in black and white as um, some others do. Right. Right. We look at things in a broad stroke as opposed to individual chapter and verse. Right. 
right? And so if the church must be that one thing that is the truth, not our personal truth, the church has all of the truth. Because, you know, we can all agree that murder is wrong, right? Yes, absolutely. So that, I mean, there's got to be something in that kind of truth. Where Where is it written that that's truth? Right. And it is in the Bible. However, that is one truth that we can always go back to. Adultery, we can say the same thing for. Right, absolutely. You know, so it's all a truth, but what is the truth that it's all going back to? And where do we learn that from? Right. The church. So... Let's think about this, though. Jesus wasn't Catholic. Right. And I get a lot of people to push back on me that Jesus wasn't Catholic. So that is a very interesting thing, and I didn't really know how to combat them um, until I really started studying. And no, he wasn't Catholic. He was a Jew. You're right. And the, right. And the question is, why are we all not Jews then? Right. Right? Um, so why aren't we? We're not, because Jesus came to fulfill all of the things in the Old Testament. Like we, we go through all of these covenants. We go through a bunch of covenants. And the final covenant that God gives us is Jesus Christ. He's the Logos. He's the word of God made flesh. God himself comes to us to make us understand this is what I want you to know, right? This is what I want you to know, which is why he's all truth. And if Jesus left us a church, he's all truth. And the church is all truth. The church knows everything. Everything is left to the church, and the church is the arbiter of that truth. She gets to decide what's true and what's not true. I can't decide that uh, tomatoes are bad, but the whole world likes tomatoes, right? And so if I do, it's my own truth. I don't like tomatoes, but like the whole world does. So uh, that's one of those things that's subjective. I don't like tomatoes, which means that no one should like tomatoes. That's objective. So objective is tomatoes are a vegetable. Actually, they're a fruit, right? They're, they're fruit. fruit. They're fruit. Yeah, they're fruit. Because the way they have their seeds and everything. But the whole point is, um, I can't take my truth and imply it upon everyone and everything. There is only one truth, right? Right. Okay. So Jesus wasn't Catholic. Jesus was a Jew and he was a good Jew. He was absolutely a good Jew. He knew all of the scriptures. He knew everything. And he came here to fulfill everything that there was in the Old Testament, right? So then how did we get from Judaism to Catholicism? Okay. If we look at Acts... Did I say that right? You did. You know, that, that's perfectly <laughs> correct. Judaism. Judaism. Or Judaism. Right? As opposed to Buddhism. As opposed to... <laughs> right? Right? That's something only the Kardashians own, right? Absolutely. Buddhism, <laughs> right? Okay. So if we look at Acts 9.31, and we take off our 21st century English-speaking glasses, and we look at it in the original Greek and Hebrew that it was written in, Acts 9.31... The church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was at peace. It was being built up and walked in the fear of the Lord, and with the consolation of the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers. So if we look at what the initial uh, Hebrew actually said and what it was translated into the early Greek, the church throughout all, the church throughout all, Catholos, Catholos, Catholos. It sounds a lot like Catholic to me. Right. And it's actually where we get where we get the term Catholic church, throughout all, universal. It was meant to be one church. And because of that, 
basically, if we look at that particular Greek, um, we can look at the fact that in Acts 9.31, written at the time of Luke, for gosh sakes, Luke the evangelist, we can see that there was a Catholic church. He was the first one who said it, Catholos. Very interesting. Right? I mean, he said Catholic church throughout all, universal. He was the one who coined that phrase, the Catholic church. So why does Catholicism carry the one true word um, and and being the one true faith as opposed to our Protestant brothers and sisters? Well, look at this. Um, Jesus Christ died, was resurrected, and ascended in 33 AD as, as as best a timeline as we can we can assemble, which is off by usually a couple of years according to our, our calendar, but according to our current calendar, 33 AD in the year of our Lord. Wow. And when we look at that, um, he left us this church. So our church, the Catholic church, the universal church, Catholos, Catholos, was founded by Jesus Christ himself. And he left all of that information to the apostles. So uh, whether you understand this or know this or not, if you happen to belong to a Protestant denomination, um, and denomination meaning in the name of, if we look at that, like Catholic is the faith, but you are now a Christian in the name of your particular flavor of faith, those were all founded by a man or a woman. They were founded by humans, not by Jesus Christ himself, who happens to be both human and completely divine, right? Right. So let's talk about uh, the timeline of how that all worked out. And and y'all don't take our word for it. I mean, it it was always very heavily put on me by my parents. Always do your research and, and don't take anybody's word for anything, but listen and have an open mind. So that's what we encourage you to do as well. So take what we're saying, but do your research. Absolutely. Right. I think if we look at this, you know, um, one of the things that happened in 1054, it was the first split. Like if you, if you happen to be a Christian, Prior to 1054, you were Catholic, Catholos. You belonged to that one universal faith. And there was a giant conflagration that we'll get into at some point in time into one of these podcasts where we talk about how the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, they call themselves Orthodox because it means true faith and Catholic means universal. Uh, It split in 1054. That was the first time there was more than one Christian church on the face of the planet. If you were a Christian at that point... You were Catholic. We'll get into that more, but I promise you. But they also didn't use the word Catholic at that time. They actually did. Did they? From the time that Justin Martyr uh, wrote his apology to the emperor. Martyr? Martyr? Martyology? Martyology? Martyology. Martyology. When he decided to write this apology to the emperor um, in the 150s, we're talking like four or five generations removed from Jesus Christ. That he was saying to the emperor, this is why we do what we do, and this is who we are as a people. He described the liturgy that we as Catholics completely understand in every church across the face of the planet right now. So when we look at that, if you were a Christian up until 1054, you were Catholic. After 1054, which is just a loose number, you might be a Catholic or Orthodox. If you're an Orthodox... You understand all of our sacraments, and we as Catholics understand all of your sacraments. They're all valid in both of our eyes. Um, However, we're two separate churches. We're two lungs of Christianity. Let's fast forward to 1517, shall we? Shall we? Martin Luther. 
right? We shall. Okay. So um, if we look at this timeline that Casey was talking about, right, in 1517, Martin Luther uh, decided he kind of disagreed with a lot of stuff that was going on in the Catholic Church. Now, Martin Luther was Catholic, though. He was Catholic. He was a monk, but he was also a priest. Wow. And he was Catholic. He was a, he was a Catholic priest. Okay. Right? A lot of us don't even know the fact that he was actually a priest. Yeah. And uh, he, in on October 31st, pounded his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. Theses? Now, theses. Oh. Theses. <laughs> <laughs> no, theses. I was going to say, Martin, that's gross. Right, right. His thoughts, okay? <laughs> he pounded them on the door, and it was not uncommon at that time for someone to put a notification on the door of a church. The church was the center of every community in Europe, and everybody would have been able to read it at that point in time. And it was his grievances with the Catholic Church. Did he have just grievances? Yeah, he did. He actually did. There was a lot of crap happening in the church at the time that needed to be sorted out. Um he just kind of about, went about it the wrong way. And because he went about it the wrong way, the church actually split and fractured. Right? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So after Martin Luther, that so that was what, 1517? 1517. October 31st, 1517. Wow. So Jesus died in 33 AD. Ascended, went to heaven, left us a church. Wow. And so it was all one religion and one faith until 1517. Absolutely. And if you don't know this, this is a good way to put this. Uh, If you belong to a Protestant denomination in the name of somebody who decided that this was going to be a Protestant denomination, you are protesting something. The root word for Protestant comes from protest. Oh, wow. Absolutely. And you are protesting what? Okay. The Catholic Church. That's what you're protesting. Wow. However, if you were born today and you're born into a Protestant family and that's where you live and that's where you belong. Obviously, you're not protesting. Right. You're not protesting. It has nothing to do with that. If 500 years ago, you were definitely protesting. Absolutely. Wow. Right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So um, then after Martin Luther, we've got the Swiss Reformed Church. And that happened. Zwingli. Zwingli. 1523. 1523. So that didn't happen too long after Martin Luther's church, Lutherans. Then the Mennonites. The Mennonites, which really didn't have a single founder. They kind of happened sort of in that German uh, princedoms. Like there were a lot of different princes in Germany that had all their own little kingdoms. The Mennonites kind of formed in that area in 1525, right? You know, so the next church that was founded in 1534, I find this one so interesting. I do too. Because it was founded by King King Henry VIII, and it was the Anglican. Absolutely. The Anglican church. I think that one is so intriguing. He was just a little brat who was stomping his feet. He was. He was allowed by the Pope to marry his dead brother's widow, which was really kind of... Creepy and unheard of at the time. However, because of that, he managed to be able to be allowed to marry her so he could keep his bloodline alive. But what he didn't realize was that uh, Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, had cancer and she couldn't have children. So he couldn't have an heir. And his eye was on his second wife, Anne Boleyn, who was in his court. She was very pretty. And he decided he wanted to... Some say the same about me. Oh, (laughs) boom, boom, yes. Good thing I got a radio voice. Right, right? Radio uh, face. (laughs) (laughs) So 
So he decided to divorce his first wife. Well, the Pope was like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to give you an annulment. This can't happen. We'll get into that in a further episode, right? Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that a Catholic divorce? No, it's not a Catholic divorce. (laughs) It's to nullify a sacrament ever occurred in the first place. However, because the Pope had approved his marriage to his dead brother's wife, he would not approve an annulment and allow him to marry someone else in the Catholic Church. Henry VIII, therefore, said, Hey, if I can't marry who I want to, to carry on my bloodline, to carry on my name, and to have a male heir, I shall be the defender of the Catholic faith in England. I shall be the defender of the faith, which split England away from the Church of Rome. So again, he was just a little brat who wanted to marry a bunch of women, but the Pope wouldn't give him divorces. He wanted his own way. And he wanted it his own way. Absolutely. So, y'all, the list keeps going. We've got Calvinism by John Calvin in 1563. Presbyterianism, John Knox, 1560. Baptist churches, John Smith, 1605. The Dutch Reformed Church, Michaelis Jones, 1628. Quakers, George Fox, 1647. The Amish, Jacob Amanon. 1693. Moravians, Count Zindorf, 1727. Zinnendorf, but I I digress. (laughs) Uh, Methodism, John Wesley, one of the most popular Christian denominations, 1739. Congregationalism, John and Charles Wesley in 1744. The Brethrens, John Darby, 1828. Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith, 1830. Seventh-day Adventists, Ellen White, 1860. Salvation Army, William Booth, 1865. Jehovah's Witness. Charles Russell, 1870. Christian Science, Mary Baker Eddy in 1879. Pentecostalism, Charles Parham, 1900. Worldwide Church of God, Herbert W. Armstrong, 1933 and 1947. And the Unification Church, Sun Moon, Sun Myung Moon, is that right? Sun Myung Moon? You got me. I said Buddhism and you thought I was. (laughs) Sun Myung Moon in uh, uh, 1954. Um, so if we look at some of these churches, they're very, very recent in the history. Very recent. When we look at the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, right? And again, yeah. we encourage you to look at this on your own. Don't take our word for it. Please, y'all, go and research this on your own. We encourage you to do that. Do not take our word for it because otherwise you're just t- taking Kevin and Casey's word. Right. What do we know? I mean, we have done our research, but I mean, come on, go do your own research. Make sure that our facts are correct. So as Casey said, y'all, if we have any incorrect information, we would love you to email us and let us know because it's really important that we're telling you the correct thing all the time. Or if you disagree with it, please. Because again, it's all about the truth. Right. It's all about the truth. And that's all we ever want to tell people. Right. That's what we want to do. For sure. Um, you can find us on the on the World Wide Web, www. at therightstuff.net, T-H-E-R-I-T-E-S-T-U-F-F.net. And there you'll find all of the links to our social media, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, hopefully at some point in time we'll do some really cool TikTok things, but YouTube. So that you too can learn how to make a strawberry fizz. Yeah, y'all, this is so good. I do love it. It's a really good, refreshing drink, especially for summertime right now. Absolutely. So here are some questions that we have received. 
Um, so Kevin, why or how do we know that the Catholic Church is the true church? Well, if we look at scripture and we look at Acts 9, 31, it says Catholos, which means universal. Which you mentioned, yeah. Yeah, and, and it means the church throughout all. Jesus prayed that we would always be one, as I am one with the Father. And that means we're one. But if we're Catholic and we're Methodist and we're Lutheran and we're Episcopalian and we're some evangelical church on the third block at the right in the sure. in the in the strip mall, that doesn't mean we're one. We all think something slightly different. But we do all believe in the same God. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And that that is never in dispute. The fact is, again, there can be only one truth. And if there's only one truth, who's the arbiter of that truth? The Methodist Church can't hold it along with the Catholic Church, if we think two different things, right? We have to think the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we're Makes Catholic, sense. understand that that church itself was founded by Jesus Christ in 33 AD. He left it to the apostles, and the apostles taught us everything that we need to know. In the event that we belong to another Christian faith denomination, it means that we belong to a church that was actually founded by some man or some woman because of their philosophy, because of their thoughts, because of what they think, as opposed to what does Jesus think? What did he leave us? Not your thoughts on it, not your interpretation on it, but what did Jesus leave us? Yeah, that's fantastic. Cool. So here's another question. Um, shouldn't I just follow my conscience? Your conscience. But I mean, that's fair though, but your conscience knows right from wrong or should know right from wrong, but where do we get that innate right from wrong? Absolutely. Um, your conscience is more about your feelings, right? I mean, your conscience tells you what I feel is right and wrong, right? So, um, if I feel like I should cheat on my spouse, maybe I should do it. No, we all know that's wrong. Okay, fair. Right? There's a truth that says no. But to play the devil's advocate... Why is that wrong? If, if, because I hear a lot of people say, I deserve to be happy. And we all do. But Jesus Christ never promised us that we were going to be happy. Jesus Christ only promised us he would always be here with us through everything. But also, well, that's going into something completely different, but does everybody deserve to be happy? Happiness is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But if we never experience pain and we never experience angst and we never experience negative things, how do we really and truly know what's happy, right? Fair. Yeah, we don't. So in the sense that you deserve to be happy, yeah, absolutely. Do we? Yes. Does that mean that there's an absence of bad things that will happen to us? Absolutely not. Jesus will be here with us through all of those bad things always. How do we know what is good and bad? Basically, the Catholic Church. She's the arbiter and the, and, the, and the holder of all of that truth. She knows what is good and what is bad, right? Yeah, and you know, I, coming from someone that has... I have a lot of Protestant friends, as I know you do, yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of them try to tweak the truth. Right. Right? So it's, well, that's not that bad because... This is why. Right. And and you try to you try to talk to them about it and and understand it. And yes, I understand their side of it, but at the same time, when you're trying to figure out what the truth is and why it's a bad thing or why it's a good thing, that there's a fine line right. a lot of times. Truth is truth. 
There's a quote by one of my favorite people on the face of the planet, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Um, you know I'm related to him. You are? I mean, like, it's all by marriage and cousins, but <laughs> I, I like that. to tell everybody that I am because that's, pretty cool. that's why I'm so cool, yeah. One of the things that he said is moral principles do not depend on a majority vote. Wrong is wrong, even if everybody is wrong. Right is right, even if nobody is right. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? Really, it's beautiful. So what is different about the Catholic Bible? Wow. This gets us into a whole different conversation. But one of the things that's really difficult is to understand that uh, in a non-Catholic Bible, there's a contention of seven books in the deuterocanonical Old Testament of the Bible. Most non-Catholic Bibles don't have seven books that the Catholic Bible actually has. So if you're missing a part of the full truth, yeah, how do you get the full truth? Which is interesting because, you know, when some of my friends, we talk about um, purgatory, for instance, right. and they say purgatory isn't in the Bible. It is. It is. But it's missing from their Bible. A portion of what supports purgatory is completely missing from a non-Catholic Bible. Yes. Absolutely. So if we're looking for truth, basically what it boils down to, Catholos, if we look at the Catholic faith, it's the universal faith. It's the faith that Jesus Christ himself left us and not someone's interpretation of what Jesus Christ may have said. Right? Right. That's a big deal. It is. Y'all, we'll be back soon with another episode of The Right Stuff. So join us soon. Thanks a bunch. The Right Stuff with Kevin and Casey. 